Welcome to the new episode of American Hauntings, the podcast dedicated to the history, hauntings, legends, and lore of America's past. Shows hosted by Cody Beck and Troy Taylor, we are now deep in our fourth season, Haunted New Orleans. If you're tuning into the podcast for the first time, we suggest you start listening to the Haunted New Orleans season with episode 53. That's where our season begins and where we set the stage for the many dark tales ahead. In each episode of the season, we'll be revealing the history, mystery, spirit, scandals, and sins of New Orleans, a city we believe is the most haunted in America. So put your money roll in your front pocket, shine your shoes, and turn on some jazz records and get ready for the next episode of Haunted New Orleans. Jazz music is without a doubt an American invention. That's about the only thing that we know for sure, other than it originated within the African-American communities of New Orleans in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Even though jazz has its roots in the blues, ragtime, traditional African music, and spirituals, it's unlike any other kind of music that exists. It is one of America's original art forms, and despite legends, it was not actually born in the red light districts of New Orleans. It just seemed that way. It was in the city's whorehouses that jazz became famous. The new sound was truly born sometime in the middle 1890s in the working class black clubs and honky tonks near the poor uptown neighborhood. You could hear it in the venues in and around South Rampart Street like Dago Tony's and the Red Onion and further away in the dives on the other side of Canal. For a time, the music was known to those who flocked to such places, the so-called ratty people, as they were called then. But before long, the new sound was being heard in parks, on street corners, in dance halls, and well beyond the confines of the black neighborhoods. And of course, that's when the trouble started. It's believed to have been a young cornet player from Uptown named Buddy Bolden who first played the music later known as jazz. Certainly many others, black, mixed race, and even white, would later lay claim to the distinction, but many of his contemporaries believed that it was Bolden who started it all. To hear them tell the story, he was extraordinary. The Bolden sound, to hear witnesses describe it, was hot, wide open, low down, and, like his most ardent fans, ratty. It was bluesy and folksy and made you want to dance. You won't find any recordings of Buddy today, but you can get the idea of his sound by searching out the Buddy Bolden Legacy Band. Give him a listen, and you'll understand how groundbreaking this sound was for the time. Soon, Buddy was attracting a lot of attention and a lot of imitators. Even some of the older musicians took notice. There were plenty of band leaders in the city already making innovative music, but Buddy took things in a whole new direction. And it wasn't just for cornet players either. It quickly became popular with clarinetists, trombone and bass players, drummers and guitarists. Young musicians were taking old tunes and making up new ones and putting their own personalities to them. It was a new music created by untrained musicians who were doing whatever they wanted. Eventually, though, the new sound played by Buddy and his imitators became so popular among working class audiences, both black and white, that it started drawing unwanted attention. The police would show up at so-called cutting contests where two bands would meet and try to outplay each other and start cracking heads to restore order. City reformers also started to take notice and they didn't like what they heard. To their ears, the new sound was dangerous, an affront to their notions of respectability, restraint, temperance, and civil order. 
The new black music represented excess and sexuality, a direct violation of traditional moral values. Worst of all, in their minds, it promoted contact of the most scandalous type across the color line. This was intolerable to most Southern whites of the era. Jazz represented everything the self-styled white supremacists hated. They wanted order, racial purity, and respectability, and that meant it had to be suppressed. Many whites in the city believed that the music literally challenged the Jim Crow laws of the time by bringing black and white audiences together. Jazz was, in a very real sense, an expression of defiance, rebelling against the increasing efforts to marginalize and suppress the African-American race. Because of this, it was viewed as a threat to the entire social order that was being reasserted in the post-Reconstruction era South. Organized efforts to quash the growth of jazz were still a few years away. In the meantime, there were just sporadic acts of intimidation. A band at a party broken up here, a racially mixed street party raided by the police there. In 1896, during one of the city's occasional smallpox outbreaks, an effort was made to close the notorious, quote, Negro Dives of Franklin Street. It was allegedly for health reasons, but it was really to shut down the jazz bands. Regardless, the effort failed. And then came Storyville, where it was hoped that jazz music could be as easily segregated and contained as prostitution would be. It was the first phase of the city's efforts to reform. By putting everything disreputable and disruptive in one place, they thought, it would be much easier to control. Well, they thought wrong. Prostitution had been a part of New Orleans since the very beginning. In fact, the first women who were shipped over from France when the colony began were prostitutes and criminals who were recruited from the prisons. Sporting houses did big business in the city, and because of this, politicians and police officers, always happy for a payoff, turned a blind eye to vice. They saw prostitution as a necessary evil that should be regulated, not suppressed. Vice was then confined during this time to a few districts near the river, except for a couple of high-class brothels that were secreted away on Royal and Charter Street in the French Quarter. It began to boom in the 1840s and started to spread throughout the city. Aside from a few feudal gestures from reform groups, nothing was done to attempt to curb the spread of brothels and sporting houses. The politicians were useless, having already been bribed into submission, and they had no interest in the ruinous effects of the real estate in the neighborhood or the complaints of hundreds of property owners who were forced by the proximity of the body houses to abandon their homes. The movement was encouraged rather than hampered by the Union soldiers during the Civil War, and by 1870, there were more than 119,000 bordellos in the city, from expensive parlor houses to 15-cent cribs. New Orleans was a wide-open town, and there was scarcely a block in the city that did not contain at least one brothel. For nearly five decades, starting in the middle 1800s, brothels operated with little or no concealment in New Orleans, and they paid tribute to local politicians, the police, and to various city and state governments. The payments were divided according to the size of the brothel and how much business was being carried out. During some occasions, like Mardi Gras, when the city was filled with free-spending strangers, graft payments would increase. During times of depression, quick-thinking politicians not only gave up their regular collections, but frequently advanced money to the brothels to pay their running expenses until business improved when they shared heavily in the gross income. 
While there were other sections of New Orleans that gained sordid reputations as abodes of vice, none of them reached the notoriety of Basin Street, which began at St. Peter Street in the French Quarter, ran southward to Canal and in the general direction through the American section to Toledano Street. Although long vanished from any map of New Orleans, the memory of Basin Street still lives on in stories, old photographs, and blues songs. For nearly a half a century, Basin Street was the main artery of the red light district. Both sides of the street were lined with the most ostentatious and luxurious and expensive brothels in America. There were three-story mansions of brick and brownstone filled with hand-carved mahogany woodwork, oriental rugs, silver doorknobs, grand pianos, marble fireplaces, copies of famous paintings and statuary, lavish furnishings and all the finest things that could be purchased or imported. Only wine and champagne were served in these places. The ladies wore evening gowns and in many places could not be seen without an appointment. When not entertaining in the luxurious bedrooms, the ladies escorted their gentlemen callers into rooms where musicians, dancers, and singers performed nightly. A few of the larger brothels were staffed by as many as 30 women, each of whom paid her madam from $30 to $50 a week for food and lodging and more for laundry and other incidentals. The fees paid by the customers ranged from $5 to $20 for a single experience and from $20 to $50 if he wished to spend the entire night. This included breakfast in the morning, by the way, and if needed, cab fare home. In later years, as Basin Street declined considerably in tone, the rates saw a drastic reduction. The wine changed to beer, the evening gowns to plain frocks, or nothing at all, their performances to erotic exhibitions, and the string quartets became tin whistles or a piano. It was a drastic change, but not much different than the one that changed Basin Street from a quiet residential neighborhood at one time to one of the most controversial thoroughfares in the city. Basin Street's evolution began in the 1830s when New Orleans began experiencing its first significant growth in population. The street became one of the finest residential districts in the city, with handsome shade trees and imposing mansions occupied by wealthy American families. But that wasn't going to last. By the end of the Civil War, Basin Street had already started to change. Unfortunately, it lay directly in the path of the prostitutes as they began moving north and east away from the earlier underworld areas where brothels had been established before the war. A few sporting houses were apparently located on Basin Street as early as 1860, but the first of the large bordellos was established by Kate Townsend in 1866. According to rumor, the house was built at the joint expense of a police department official, a parish recorder, and several members of the city council. The names of these men were never made public, which made it merely sordid New Orleans gossip, but it was likely true. Kate Townsend was one of the most influential courtesans in the history of the city, and for many years, Horbordello was a favorite meeting place for politicians and city officials. Kate occupied a large suite of rooms on the first floor of her bordello at number 40 Basin Street, and she spent more than $40,000 decorating them in fine style. The rest of the house was furnished in gaudy magnificence, and every floor boasted an overabundance of gilt, plate glass, and velvet. The building and contents was said to be worth well over $200,000. Only a high-class trade was encouraged and lower persons who occasionally made it into the place were thrown out by Kate herself. The number of girls regularly on duty varied between 10 and 20. Each girl was given one day off each week and all of them were schooled in the art of being a lady. 
evening dress was required and bawdy talk and lewd behavior was not allowed. When a gentleman arrived, he was met at the door by a uniformed maid. If he was a steady client, many of whom had charge accounts, he was ushered into the drawing room where he was expected to buy wine for the assembled company. If the man was a stranger, he was shown into an anteroom and questioned by Kate, who also drank a glass of wine with him, which he paid for, of course. If his credentials were in order, he was ushered into the drawing room and allowed to pick from the girls. Once he made his choice, they discreetly retired to the young woman's boudoir for a price of usually $15. A few of the more popular girls earned $20. Kate Townsend herself was occasionally available for the entertainment of a particularly distinguished client at the going rate of $50 an hour. But, well, this man had to be someone of particular taste since Kate tipped the scales at over 300 pounds. The operation brought Kate great prosperity for the next half dozen years, but as the power of the politicians on whom she depended began to wane, she was compelled to abandon some of her stricter rules, lower her rates, and open the brothel to men of lesser wealth and importance. The new clients brought almost as much money into the house in the long run, but the fact that Kate had to lower her standards in such a way weighed so heavily on her mind that she began to display a mean streak and a violent temper, which naturally drove away some of the trade. When Kate was murdered in 1883, though, it was a scandal that shocked the city. Early in her career, Kate had formed a relationship with Trevel Egbert Sykes, who went by the name of Bill. He came from a good New Orleans family, but by late 1870s had run out of money and luck. Kate took penny on him, gave him a job keeping books, and allowed him to live in a room on the second floor of the brothel. He lived there for five years, during which time, according to his story, he led what he called a dog's life. Kate allegedly beat him, locked him in his room, refused to give him spending money, cut off one of his toes with a knife she always carried, and frequently threatened to kill him when he refused her orders. Kate, on the other hand, often complained that Bill was jealous and a thief and that he interfered with her business. A few months after he took up residence in her house, she had him arrested for forging her signature to five checks that totaled up to $7,000, but, well, she later refused to prosecute, and the charges were dropped. Kate's troubles with Bill hit their low point in October 1883, when she became infatuated with a young man named McClern, who often came to the house, borrowed money, and allowed Kate to lavish him with gifts. Bill tried to throw McClern out of the house, but he ended up being beaten by Kate and by her new lover. Kate was still so angry the next day that she picked up a butcher's knife in the kitchen and went looking for Bill so that she could kill him. Luckily, she didn't find him. A few days later, on November 1st, Kate and McLearn went out drinking with friends. They got into an argument and Kate was so angry and so drunk that she told a friend that she needed to stab someone. Since she didn't want to stab McLearn, she said that she'd go home and open Sykes' belly. When she got there, one of the girls warned Bill that he was in danger and he locked himself in his room and bolted the door. But Kate passed out before she could do any damage. She slept through the next day and woke on November 3rd with a terrible hangover. Around 9.30 that morning, the maid heard screams, breaking glass, and a wild commotion coming from Kate's room. A few minutes later, Bill opened the door. His clothing was in shreds and he was covered with blood. And Kate Townsend was dead. She'd been stabbed 11 times. Bill told the police he'd gone to her room that morning and she'd pulled a knife from under her pillow and attacked him. He managed to get the knife away from her, he said, and then she attacked him with a pair of scissors. He had to kill her. He had no choice, but it was self-defense. 
Kate's body was dressed in a $600 white silk gown and laid out in the drawing room. Those who came to pay their respects were served champagne. Her body was followed to the cemetery by a procession of 20 carriages, and there was not a man in any one of them. The public administrator took charge of the brothel and soon afterwards leased it to another madam who operated it until her death in 1889. After that, the house was closed and the contents were auctioned off. It later became an Elks Lodge. Bill Sykes was tried for murder but was acquitted. No one could prove that his claims of self-defense were not true. He then sued to try and claim Kate's estate, and by the time it made it through the court system, it was settled in 1888 with about $33,000 left over. After the state took its taxes and the lawyers took their fees, Bill ended up with the grand sum of $34. Basin Street was, of course, not the only home to brothels and bordellos in New Orleans. By the 1890s, they had become scattered throughout the city, especially in the French Quarter, and the city finally came to the realization that unless some sort of suppressive or regulatory measures were carried out, the city would eventually be transformed into one large vice district. Several ordinances were proposed but all failed, including one that might provide for a segregated vice district and the issuing of licenses to prostitutes. The measure fell before the united opposition of clergymen and women's groups who advanced the argument that such a law would recognize the existence of vice in New Orleans, which, I mean, at this point, was pretty hard to miss. Well, nothing further was done about the matter until January 26, 1897, when the city council adopted the now-famous ordinance introduced by Alderman Sidney Story that would set aside an area where prostitution would not only be permitted, it would be legal. The ordinance was changed and adapted several times before it was finally determined that this red light district would compose a total of 38 blocks that would be occupied solely by brothels, saloons, cabarets, and other enterprises that depended on vice for their prosperity. The new vice district was dubbed Storyville, much to the embarrassment of Alderman Sidney's story, who had proposed its creation in the first place. Within a few years, Storyville became the most celebrated red light district in the United States, and tourists came from all over both to see and experience it. The gateway to Storyville was the property of Thomas C. Anderson, saloon keeper, political boss of the Fourth Ward, member of the legislature for two terms, owner of at least one of the most prosperous sporting houses in the district, and the unofficial mayor of Storyville. Anderson owned a restaurant and cabaret on Rampart Street he called the Annex. It was the district's unofficial town hall. Storyville boomed during Anderson's years as a leader. The area along North Basin Street was the site of the new district's swankiest brothels. The imposing three and four story mansions were bordellos where business was conducted with considerable elegance and ceremony. Rudeness and lewd behavior on the part of the customers was frowned upon and drunken gentlemen were tossed out. When a man entered the parlor, he was expected to buy a drink, incidentally at a great profit to the house, but the girls were not brought out for inspection unless he requested it. All the sporting houses were more or less expensively furnished and equipped with as much gilt and velvet as the madams and their financial backers could afford. Many of them had one or more rooms with mirrored walls and ceilings, which were available at special rates. 
ballrooms with hardwood floors for dancing, and curtain stages for erotic performances that were given whenever sufficient money was offered. Storyville became an important venue for jazz music. At first, the establishments of the district were reluctant to hire bands. They thought if the customers were busy dancing, after all, they wouldn't be buying drinks or women. But eventually, the new music became too popular to ignore. Buddy Bolden's band, as well as other hot ensembles, were soon playing regularly at Storyville clubs like Nancy Hank's Saloon and the Big 25. Tom Anderson's annex began by hiring a string trio, piano, guitar, and violin, but eventually became a spot for larger bands, too. The brothels also wanted the new music. It was often in the form of a single piano professor playing in the parlor while clients chose their partners for the night. It wasn't much, but it was something. According to some reports, Countess Willie Piazza was the first madam to bring music into her sporting house, hiring a legendary pianist known as John the Baptist to play on her famous white grand piano. Other pianists like Tony Jackson, Clarence Williams, and Jelly Roll Morton eventually found their own regular gigs in the district. Storyville may not be the birthplace of jazz, as has sometimes been claimed, but the various venues in the district did provide many early jazzmen with employment and helped to bring their music to a wider and usually non-black audience. Of course, this is what earned jazz its early reputation as whorehouse music, but the musicians that played it didn't much care so long as they had an audience and they were getting paid. The groundbreaking musicians soon reached a new audience, including reporters who were writing stories about the brothels of Storyville, thus connecting jazz and vice for their readers. Whether the connection was deserved or not, Storyville began the career of many musicians who went on to great fame. It also provided a home to perhaps 200 or more musicians who worked the mansions of the district, but of whom little record remains today. They're only recalled as whispered legends from a time when music rolled out of brothel windows and echoed down the street. Unlike jazz, though, Storyville didn't last. It was doomed by America's entrance into World War I in 1917. In August, Secretary of War Newton D. Baker issued an order forbidding open prostitution within five miles of an army camp. A similar rule was made for naval bases, and later that same month, Bascom Johnson, representing War and Navy Departments, visited New Orleans, inspected Storyville, and informed the mayor that it had to be shuttered. The mayor protested all the way to Washington, but it didn't do any good. If the city didn't close Storyville, the military would do it for them. The deadline was November 12th. After that, it would be illegal to operate a brothel anywhere in New Orleans. On Saturday night, November 10th, two days before the new law went into effect, a large force of police officers was sent to Storyville to prevent the trouble that was expected to come from the closing. But none developed. And in fact, the district was quieter than usual, as if in mourning. There were a few people in the streets, but most of the saloons, cabarets, and brothels were empty. Many of them had already closed, and the red lights had been removed from the windows of others. On November 11th, Madam Gertrude Dix appealed to civil courts for an injunction that prevent the city from closing the district, but the request was refused. The exodus from Storyville had actually started two weeks earlier, but many of the prostitutes had waited for the result of Gertrude Dix's application for a restraining order. When the news of her failure spread, wagons and vans began hauling away whatever furniture remained that had not been sold to secondhand dealers. As late as midnight on November 12th, there was still a parade of women laden with property leaving the district. The next afternoon, police officers visited every house and informed the women that if they remained in Storyville, they would have to take down their red lights and that they would be watched and arrested if they continued to operate. 
On November 14th, the New Orleans Item newspaper announced that the police planned to round up any of the men who came looking for prostitutes in what was once Storyville and send them out into the countryside to help the farmers. <laughs> Needless to say, nothing came of that idea. The next day, many leading church women and members of the Louisiana Federation of Women's Clubs held a meeting and put together a committee to help the prostitutes that had been driven out. But none of them ever applied for the promised aid. Few of the women of Storyville needed it. You see, they just simply moved to new locations and various business and residential sections of the city and continued plying their profession. There's almost nothing left of Storyville today. Once located along Basin Street between Canal Street and St. Louis Cemetery No. 1, most of the district was leveled as part of a slum clearance project in 1940. It was turned into the Iberville Public Housing Project, but then that was torn down in 2013 to make room for new federal housing. There are only three buildings from Storyville still standing today, and only one you can visit. Frank Early's My Place Saloon, where you just might hear some of the music that was heard from the windows of the Storyville sporting houses. Three buildings left, but one ghost story. It's a story about one of the most infamous madams that owned a bordello in Storyville. Her name was Josie Arlington, or at least the Nets, the name she went by. Her real name was Mary Dubler. She was born in New Orleans around 1864 and was never married. In 1881, she fell in love with a gambler and pimp named Philip Lebrano, and she was his mistress for nine years. During that time, she worked in various brothels in the city using the name Josie Alton. Around 1888, Josie began using the name Lebrano and opened a place of her own on Custom House Street. It soon became known as one of the toughest houses in New Orleans, but Josie still made enough money to support several members of her family and Lebrano, who lived in the house with her. Lebrano hated her relatives, and during a terrible fight in which Josie and all her girls were involved, Lebrano shot her brother, Peter Dubler. Lebrano was tried twice for murder and was acquitted at the second trial. But after the shooting, Josie ended things with Lebrano and changed her name to Arlington. She dismissed all the cheap girls who worked for her, remodeled her house, and hired cultured women who she felt better appealed to the tastes of gentlemen of refinement. She reopened her renovated bordello, which she called the Arlington in Storyville, and it became known as one of the grandest and gaudiest in the district. Josie ran the place for 10 years and amassed a considerable fortune. The only thing that Josie still craved, though, was social acceptance, which was something she could never have. She was shunned by the families of the city and even publicly ignored by the men she knew so well. Her money and charm meant nothing to the society circles of New Orleans, but Josie would have her revenge. What she couldn't have in life, she would have in death. She purchased a plot of land in Metairie Cemetery, the city's most fashionable burial ground, and built a costly red marble tomb topped by two pillars. On the steps was placed a bronze statue that ascended the staircase with a bouquet of roses in the crook of her arm. The tomb was an amazing piece of funerary art, designed by an eminent architect, and although it cost Josie a small fortune, it was worth every penny to her because of the scandal it created. Tongues wagged all over the city, and the gossip only increased after Josie died in 1914. You see, a few months after her death, the city installed a traffic light on the road alongside the cemetery. At night, the glow of the light struck the marble tomb in such a way that it gave the perfect illusion of a red light shining at the door of a brothel keeper's tomb. The monument was soon dubbed Josie Arlington's Flaming Tomb. 
The word quickly spread and people came in droves to witness the bizarre sight. The cemetery was overrun with people every evening, which shocked the cemetery caretakers and the families of those buried on the grounds. Scandal followed Josie, even to her death. And that wasn't the end of the story. Soon, an alarming number of sightseers began to report another weird event. Many swore they'd actually seen the statue on the front steps move. Even two of the cemetery gravediggers swore they had witnessed the statue leave her post and walk around the grounds. They claimed to follow her one night, only to see her suddenly disappear. Records say that on two occasions, the statue was found in other parts of the cemetery. Most blame vandals, but the legends, well, they say otherwise. People who lived near the cemetery claim that the statue of the maiden on the steps, as she was called, would sometimes become angry and begin pounding on the door of the crypt. This spectral pounding would create a din that could be heard for blocks. Anyone who asked about the noises would be told that it was the maiden trying to get in. The story was that Josie had lived by a certain rule regarding her bordello in Storyville. The rule was that no virgins would ever be allowed to enter her establishment. The stories say that she placed the statue of the maiden on the steps of the tomb to symbolize this lifelong code of honor. <laughs> yeah, right. Others say that the statue is Josie herself. As a young girl, she stayed out too late, the stories say, and her father locked her out of the house. Even though she pounded on the door and pleaded with him, he would never allow her to enter again. After that, she went away and began a career that eventually made her one of the richest women in New Orleans. Still others say that while the statue may be Josie Arlington, they say it symbolizes Josie as an outsider to the society circles that she always wanted to be inside of. They say that no matter how hard she knocked, the doors would never open for her. The tradition of the flaming tomb has been kept alive for many years, although it was created by the nearby traffic light when it swayed in the wind. But, well, no one has ever been able to provide an explanation for the eyewitness accounts of the tomb's statue, which knocked on the door and moved around by itself. It's true that Josie was never accepted in life, but she's still certainly on the minds of many in New Orleans long after her death. if it had a little beep thing yeah it did it would here we go thanks for tuning into the american hauntings podcast the show where we discuss history hauntings legends lore and the dark side of american history we are now deep into season four of the podcast haunted new orleans i'm your co-host cody beck and with me is my co-host author historian crime buff and the founder of american hauntings troy taylor you know i think i've been <laughs> i think we put deep into season four starting with episode two yes <laughs> Yes. So, which really wasn't that deep, and yeah. really neither is this. It's, what is this, like the fifth episode it's or, the sixth, deep south. or sixth episode? So, And we put a lot of brain power <laughs> yeah. into it. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's you know, All right, deep. it's far enough. Yeah, so, whatever, yeah. it works. What's going on, man? Well, no, just getting ready for, gearing up for 
everything we've got coming up. You yeah, know, just never stops. tickets around. I know. Never stops. It never stops. You. Well, the thing is, is people always complain. Oh, there's nothing to do in the winter time once Halloween's over, and mm-hmm. it's like, okay, we've got stuff to do all the time. We have all stuff the time. every month. We have things going on. Uh, Dead of Winter is a week and a half away. That's Can crazy. Can you believe that? No. So, and in fact, the next episode of the podcast after this one will be our live show from Dead of Winter. Nice. So that's how soon it's coming up. So come and join us on February 8th at the Mineral Springs in Alton. Uh, um, for our free daytime event uh, yeah. admission. Uh, the only admission is a canned good or non-perishable item. And I'd love to end up with even more stuff this year mm-hmm. than we've ever had before. Every year, our, our people who come to these things are, are super generous mm-hmm. and they bring a ton of stuff and they bring things that we don't even think of. We always yeah. say canned goods and stuff, but you know, people need, you know, paper towels and light bulbs and toilet paper and things that we, you don't even think of. Mm-hmm. And uh, we end up with these huge, gigantic piles of stuff, which is awesome. I mean, yeah. thousands of pounds of things, food and, and you know, boxed mixes and all kinds of stuff. So um, come bring, you know, something and uh, come in, enjoy the speakers, enjoy the daytime events. Uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. It's a f- lot of fun every year. And uh, Cody and I are going to be doing a live uh, live podcast that day. Well, we're going to be recording a live podcast yeah. that day with audience participation. And no, don't ask me what it's about. Uh, yet. I, gonna... uh, I know you were going to, but I'm not going to say at this point. So we, I know we were discussing. We didn't know before. Now we know, but I'm not telling anybody. Not we. So, you oh, know. Me. Okay, me. I know. Uh, so and we'll. Uh, I'll spring it on Cody the day of. Uh, so it'll be yeah. before that. That's good. I'll give him something. So what's the, uh, what's what, if there's like one item you could tell people to bring, I know socks are like a big deal, but like, is there one thing become a big deal? And I never, you know, that's not something I really thought of because we're talking about food banks and stuff, but they need all that kind Mm -hmm. of stuff. So socks are always good. And, you know, canned goods are always great. And, you know, we will have, you know, we always have tons of, you know, mixes and macaroni and cheese and all that. And anything is great. Mm-hmm. I mean, any of that stuff is great. It's just, we often don't think about toilet paper and things like that, yeah. but the, it's in great, obviously it's in great demand. Yes. And so having it for the food banks and, you know, this is at the point in the winter where, you know, early February, the, the Christmas stuff has run out. You know, people are always happy to give at Christmas time, but then that stuff goes. Mm-hmm. So now they're struggling to make it through the rest of the winter. And so that we try to plan this event in February so that we've got something that we can to, can send to the food bank so that they've got tons of stuff to get them through the, the rest of the winter. So, so that's by that's design that it's always it is. It's, we always have it in February just for that reason. I mean, initially we started it, uh, the very first one we did like 20 three years ago, I think we centered it around, uh, St. Valentine's day. Mm. And so we did it around Valentine's day and we talked about, you know, the ghosts of the St. Valentine's day massacre and that kind of stuff. And then it's just sort of grown over the years and we've had it in a lot of different places, but we try to keep it around this same time of the year. And ever since we turned it into a food drive event, um, we've kept it here because this is the time when people need it the most. So come right. out, join us. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, there's a few spots left for the extra events. I can't even tell you what's left now, but you can check with us that day. Uh, and we'll have, and you can go to AmericanHauntings.net, see all the different speakers we have and all the things that are going on that day. So, so come in, drop by, bring in some stuff, hang out with us. 
Um, you know, there's going to be all kinds of vendors, all kinds of stuff going on. It's going to be a really fun day. Yeah. Um, so, and then later in February, speaking of February, we have a, a brand new evening with dinner that I just started this winter on the 22nd. And it's the evening with the Bell Witch. You love the Bell Witch. I do love the Bell Witch. This is something we could do an entire season of the podcast on this one. So, but I've got to condense it down into one night, but that's okay. I can yeah. do it. And uh, it's one of the, it's a true story. One of the most frightening hauntings in American history. Um, I'm super excited about this one. So this is one that I, I was new when I added it to the schedule this year. Um, so hopefully I'll see some of you there. Get your reservations, AmericanHauntings.net. And of course, I will mention uh, again that tickets are on sale for the Haunted America Conference coming up in June. Um, we are over one third sold out already. So if you're thinking, oh, that's okay, I'll just wait and get my tickets later. It's not till June. Yeah, it, it unfortunately d- doesn't work that way. Right. Especially if you want to attend any of the after hour stuff, which are really filling up. Um, so this event will be sold out in advance. It's our 24th year. Um, and people know that they're going to have a good time with this event. You know, a lot of people have been before or they've heard about it, or maybe they came years ago and want to come again. Uh, I could tell you it gets better every year. Yeah. Uh, we'll be, um, you know, the, the podcast will be there. Cody will be there, uh, doing interviews, talking to people about their ghost stories and things. We have all kinds of speakers with all kinds of events. Just check it out at ghostconference.net. Get your tickets. I'm not kidding. Get your tickets. It's, um, it's something that you'll have that you know you can look forward to and you don't have to worry about whether or not stuff's going to be sold out yep. when the time comes. Uh, because I will guarantee you that we have it here at the Best Western Premiere in Alton uh, where we often record our podcasts. And I will tell you that the entire hotel will be sold out if you do not get your tickets and get your discount link for the hotel when you get your tickets. We send that out to you with your confirmation and um, you got to book your room because the hotel completely fills up with just our people. We are the only people here that weekend, but it will fill up and then you'll be stuck trying to find another hotel somewhere close by if you wait too long. So I'm just, I'm telling you, um, this is just a, this is a service announcement for you. Uh, do not wait, do not wait. And I'm so. thinking about, I'll be outside with a trench coat and I'll be selling tickets <laughs> at a, at a premium. Yeah. yeah right. Right. You'll uh, be scalping tickets. Yes, up front, exactly. Right? Surge pricing yeah. only. Yeah. But yeah, I, I really can't wait. Oh and man, I know. I'm already excited about it. So, so. I'm already sad that it's over because I'm already, I, I, know, I know, right. We're already happen. thinking about it being over with because it's so much fun. So yeah, my, my, upcoming highlights of the year or the conference and then our trip to New Orleans in July. Yes. So yeah, Cody and I and, and some of our friends are going down to New Orleans again this year. So um, this podcast has become like a gearing up for our trip thing. Yeah. So it's going to be fun. Definitely. So and we uh, may still be doing the podcast this same season and come July. I know. I, right? I don't really know. So we, it's just going to depend on how these, some of these episodes go. We may still be doing it. We'll so. have to do like a bonus thing from new Orleans. We will, or something. we will. And we'll do that anyway. Yeah. So we should try to see if maybe we can get like some of our friends that are down there that are guides and stuff. Oh maybe yeah. We can interview them or something. That'd be fun. The podcast. That'd be fun. Yeah. So. And like Troy said, I'll be there taking ghost stories and, and talking to people. But uh, I don't know if, it, if somebody has, any other ideas for stuff we could do? I, mean, I could do because yeah, Troy will be running yeah. around, but I'll be I'll be yeah. able to do something. Yeah. Um, let me know. I'm I'm curious what people would like or what would yeah. be fun. Yeah, and whether you're at Dead of Winter or at Haunted America Conference, um, you probably won't be able to find Troy. But if you can find me, come no, up and say hi. Around. No, I well, we'll you're be yeah, around. we're all I'm always running around, but we're, we'll be there. And Cody and I will be um, probably. Up around 1030 or so, we'll be doing that live episode. So make sure that you're there if you want to hear it. 
Nothing like an early morning show when my well, brain I know. is we'll going. We'll be there earlier than that, <laughs> unfortunately. But I know. Uh, awesome. Well, we have some listener reviews. Oh, okay. And something I'm trying out right now, it's a site called, uh, you can go to ratethispodcast.com slash American Hauntings, and that'll pop up whatever Now, if I go have. to, well, I'm not going to go there to rate our show, oh, but sure. if I go to ratemypodcast.com, can I do a search? Uh, yeah, you can do that. So you can put in American Hauntings in a mm-hmm. search rather than try to read. Because yes. a lot of people won't remember what they're supposed to put in. Yep. Yeah, you can just go to ratemypodcast.com. Okay. I just wondered. I, we hadn't talked about it, and I thought I'd ask. Yeah, yeah, no no worries. So I'm trying that out because I know not everybody has iTunes or is able to figure that out. So if you just want to yeah, leave I can't, us a review. I think you can leave on, reviews on like Spotify and stuff. You, so. I don't know exactly. You? How, you can do it on some apps oh, and okay. others you can't. I don't know. Um, so. But I see people doing that every now and then on like Stitcher, Castro, some oh, other I ones. See. So yeah, if that's easier for you. You, well, we will never see them unless they're in iTunes. So, <laughs> oh, find <laughs> you them. might, but I won't. Oh, but find them. So, okay. So, if they leave a review on Rate My Podcast, does it automatically put it somewhere else? Oh, no, no, no. So, Rate My Podcast—that's oh, the only place where the review is. No, no, no. So, Rate My Podcast okay. just hosts um, links to all of our oh, okay. pod- podcasts so, on different apps. Okay, so if you if you listen on Spotify, mm-hmm. well, that doesn't. You can go to ratemypodcast.com slash American Hauntings and then you'll click a Spotify link and it'll take, us, take you to okay. our show gotcha. on Spotify. Gotcha. Yeah, okay. It's just like a one-stop shop Now kind of thing. I understand. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. I didn't mean to be dumb. I just... No, no. It's, it's a, I just sprang this on Troy too, I'm so he, he didn't know about any of this Get stuff. Get off my lawn. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> That's going to be you <laughs> yeah, one day with a BB gun. <laughs> uh, anyway, so we started this because of listener reviews. Uh, so yes. we, we have a couple reviews that I wanted to go through. So this first one is titled Wonderful Fun for a Local Resident. My family has multiple ties to Alton and St. Louis area, so I'm really enjoying the first two seasons so much. Getting to hear the history of so many of the places I've heard of and been to uh, been through throughout the years is fun. Thanks for shining a light on these stories. Uh, Even which, though the audio is terrible. Is that what they... Is that the, uh, the, uh, well, it got cut off, so... Uh, okay. uh, yeah, I didn't want to yeah. click see more. Yeah. Um, this And that was from World Travelers 2009. So if cool. they're traveling all over the world and they're like in Alton and St. Louis, then... Yeah, awesome. I don't know. I don't know yeah. what's going on. Um, thank you for the review. This next one's titled, Love This Podcast So, So Much. So I just got into this podcast like a month ago because my teacher mentioned it to me while talking about ghosts and hauntings. Well, I'm really enjoying... teacher. I know. I'm really enjoying it so far. I'm on season two right now. Troy's opening monologues are always fascinating and Cody's questions always help bring even more to the table. So that was from Shinagimit. Chan one three four two six six six. I don't know why you tried it. I know there's a lot going on there, but uh, I I really appreciate yeah appreciate the review and uh, that your teacher said that. That's (laughs) really cool. Right. right. Um, Are you in third grade or college? I don't know. I don't (laughs) know. Right. Yeah, it's hard to say whether you're not. You should be flattered. Right. Either way, you got a phone. You were you were able to leave the review. They seem to be about twelve years old, so we don't know. (laughs) No, us. Oh, us. Yeah. Right. Right. Uh, okay. This last one's called uh, Seriously Awesome. I just finished the more Velisca House season. The deep dive into contextual history, the events, people, the aftermath. This uh, this is my happy place. This podcast is such a fabulous mix of historical crime and the paranormal. The monologue and post monologue that explains more about the situation is a great format. I absolutely binged. I'm listening to the rest of the seasons. I will be recommending you to my friends and then I have some books to hunt down. <laughs> so that's awesome. Thank you so much for those reviews. Uh, this last one, I'm just to say real quick um, is an updated review um, that's been updated many times. That was that was the one that struggled to understand your role, right? Yes, which is fair. Uh, it's it's <laughs> that's, a that's existential still my favorite it's an existential crisis I have every one day. One of my favorites. Um, but the 
last the last update just says update fine tune perfection keep it up you guys rock and I really appreciate it because the initial review was about my role and then like audio stuff too and we've been trying so hard we have really with the audio stuff we can't I can't do anything about Cody but the audio <laughs> stuff the, the audio stuff we have been able to greatly improve yes. so, uh, so hopefully people have noticed I yeah. think they have yeah and um, so anytime somebody notices like mentions it I just really want to call it out well and thank it, you so much I know, well and the thing is is that every time we hear about how bad the audio is is they're saying well I just I'm in you know episode one or, know. or I'm you know I just started episode two and you guys sound like you're in a barrel and we know right. we know and we did the best we could but it, it is better now yes so and everything I, is better you guys you have no idea the in just you know three and a quarter seasons you mm-hmm. have no idea the changes we have made from yeah. one way or two or the other I, I don't even want to tell you how I used to record the monologues yeah so I won't even tell you I don't you want don't to tell wanna, you how we used you, to use the initial recorder we had <laughs> yeah oh. you don't want to know but you know it's everything has changed for the better and and I honestly again I'm going to thank our Patreon people for yeah. that because that has has made it a better podcast there's no question so yeah so thank you for the recognition that's uh, JLMW1969 really appreciate it and, yeah. and thanks for updating your review too yeah, yeah. and being honest about it and, sure. and uh, I just really appreciate that are you ready to dive into I'm, this yep, story absolutely alright let's talk jazz this is music my second, this is one of my second favorite your um, second favorite yeah this is you know I love the, the I love the pirate episode mm-hmm. that we did the last time but I really enjoy this episode um, it's such a colorful part of New Orleans history mm-hmm. and, and okay I get it and I have had bad reviews posted on some of the books I've written about red light districts and that kind of stuff. But that that's history. I mean, that's history. And, you know, the, a lot of the people who were involved in the vice business at the time were horrible people, mm-hmm. uh, or they were people living under terrible conditions, but not all of them were. And I think it's an interesting part of, it's a forgotten history of America that we can't you can't ignore it. Yeah. And there are a lot of terrible stories and there are a lot of very funny stories mm-hmm. that come out of that era of the late 1800s in the early 1900s and especially in New Orleans where yeah. this was something that was so widely accepted it became part of the city. I right. mean, you know, um, you know the 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 House of the Rising Sun song is is based on a well, I don't know. It's got it Legend has it mm-hmm. that it's based on a place in in New Orleans. And I mean, it talks about it in the song. And, you know, there's a there's a place you can actually stay there. It's a hotel oh. now. Yeah. So, you know, it's I don't know. It's it's an interesting part of New Orleans history. And I, I enjoy covering it because there's so many different parts of it that mix together. That's why I mixed jazz so deeply with this episode, because the you know legend has it jazz was born in Storyville. It wasn't. But that's where it became popular. Mm-hmm. And if it hadn't have been for, you know, a red light district in New Orleans, we wouldn't have the music we have today. Mm-hmm. It would have never have gained the popularity that it did. I don't think that's my opinion. Sure. And I'm no expert on the history of jazz either. I just enjoy the history of it. And I mean, I don't 
really think I'm an expert on anything. I just really like different parts I of history. No, are. I don't think so. I, I have so many varied interests that I can't, I, I would never consider myself to be an expert in any of them, but I just enjoy the history so much I like telling it. Mm-hmm. And that's that's this that's what this whole episode turned out to be about. You're an expert at getting books published. Well, I like, yeah, because I, that's what I like to do. <laughs> right, right. I wouldn't say I'm an expert at that either. I just enjoy it. And I like to tell the stories of things that maybe people wouldn't remember otherwise. And I think that these are two things that were combined that were worthy of telling Mm -hmm. in this this episode. Well, we'll just have to agree to disagree. Okay, that's that's something you brought up. Why is it called Red Light District? I know there are red lights, but what's the deal? Well, you know, they always, they, they would turn on, literally turn on, I mean, you know, the police song, Roxanne, you yeah. have to turn on the red light. That, that's been around for a very long time with these vice districts and they would put red lights outside the houses of ill repute, sporting houses, bordellos, brothels, whatever. I call them all kinds of different things just to change it up. Uh, but there would be a red light outside to advertise the fact that there was sex for sale inside. Mm-hmm. Um, but how it got started, nobody really knows. There is a legend that the very first red light districts using red lights was in Dodge City, Kansas during the, you know, during the, the Wild West era. Mm-hmm. And it was said that it got started because the railroad men, the brakemen carried red lanterns. That's how they signaled the engineers that you know, when trains were hooked up and yep. ready to move. So they would take their, when they got into town, into Dodge City, they would take their lanterns with them to the bordellos and would hang them outside mm. so that that way, if there was a problem uh, with the train or the train needed to leave, they would always know where the brakemen were because gotcha. the lights were outside. Now, I don't know. Nobody knows if that's true. Mm-hmm. That's just, that's a legend, but it's thought that maybe that's how it got started. It's, it's kind of like, um, in Chicago in the late 1800s, one of the there were several vice districts, a lot of them, uh, but the biggest one was called the Levy, and nobody knows why it was called that. Um, there were there are a lot of different reasons why it might have been called the Levy, but it was. And so, towns all over the Midwest, their vice districts became known as the Levy. Oh, okay. now, it had nothing to do with anything that was going on in town. It wasn't that there was a levee along the river. They called them that because of the one that was so popular in Chicago. And so soldiers and railroad men and travelers knew about the big levee district in Chicago. So it got nicknamed around. But all of that stuff, I mean, no, no I know you'll find this hard to believe, but no one kept in-depth histories of most sure. of this stuff. Most of what we have comes out of old newspapers or in the case of Storyville, they actually, Storyville was so organized, they actually published their own, not only their own newsletter, but they also published a book that was a guidebook. And some of the places in Chicago did the same thing. The Levy District, when the uh, Everly sisters were in Chicago, they they were listed in guidebooks around the country. Wow. Um, so if you go back 125 years or 130 years, Vice districts have gotten, you know, we, we think of prostitution, it's this horrible thing, and now it's gotten a whole different kind of feel to it. But that was a commonly accepted part of a town because mm-hmm. that's how you regulated. That's how you kept things in check. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of like, well, you know, we can compare it to like marijuana sales now. Well, rather than have a, a drug dealer on your corner selling it to you, might as well get it and tax it. Well, that's exactly what they were doing with red light districts. So the sex workers would all be taxed. 
which usually meant like a kick up to the local police precinct, which then kicked up to the right. local alderman who then kicked up to someone else. But all of these things were regulated and they were kept in one place. And that's how they thought they would control these things. And, um, you know, in a lot of ways it worked. Mm-hmm. I mean, it certainly worked with Storyville. Right. Um, they did keep things in check. I mean, yes, there were still people being murdered and there was still crime going on, but you didn't have prostitutes and brothels and things all over the city this way. You had them all in one place. And because people were going to, that was the era, people were coming to these places anyway. So you might as well put them in one spot and turn it into a tourist attraction, yeah. which is exactly what Chicago and New Orleans, and I'm sure other cities too, but those are the two I've written about the most history-wise as far as the red light districts go, they turned them into tourist attractions that became known all over the country, much to the embarrassment of, you know, mayors and aldermen and people like poor Sidney Story who right. proposed the idea in the first place and then they named it after him, the, yeah, you know, hilarious. which I'm sure was embarrassing to him. But, you know, on, on, on second thought, look at all the crime they prevented because they did it. So... I don't know, man. It's it's one of those things that I I have a hard time. You know, again, you can't judge events of the past by the standards of today. But I look at the what they were doing with the idea, and it's it's like that. See, I don't know if you ever watched The Wire. But, uh, I tried. I couldn't, oh, I couldn't yeah, do I loved, it. That was a great series. But they there was a season where they actually took all the drug dealers in Baltimore and put them in this like wrecked out part of the city, and then made them stay there. And it actually made the crime rates drop significantly mm. because even though, it, you know, it all blows up in the end. But, sure. you know, but it was an idea that, you know, looking back in history had worked before. So they they did it again for the for the episode for mm-hmm. the couple episodes of this, this season. But um, so I don't know. You know, I mean, I'm kind of torn on, you know, whether or not that worked. And, you know, this it seems like unless unless people who are involved in it are being forced into it, which mm-hmm. of course is the, you know, yep. and that's been going on forever too. And it still goes on today. Um, it seems a victimless crime unless someone is being forced into it. Right. So it's, it's one of those things that, uh, you know, I don't know. I, I, I really enjoy looking into the history of it. And this was a case I got to look into the history of jazz because that's what made it popular. Mm-hmm. And um, it's an interesting history in New Orleans as right. far as, how things used to be. Yeah. It, and there's a lot more detail. I mean, I've written a lot about it in uh, in that Wicked New Orleans book I did. I, I mean, I trace it back to the very beginning because you got to remember that as far as prostitutes go, that was um, pretty much the uh, original, you know, settlers of yeah. New Orleans are prostitutes, thieves and criminals out of jails. This That's how the city started. So, you know, the, the history of, of that has been with New Orleans for the very, very, very beginning. Um, but things were really rough mm-hmm. early on. And then, you know, first you had Basin Street and then you had Storyville, which was really just an offshoot of Basin. But it was it's interesting. You know, yeah. you have people like and then you have people like Louis Armstrong coming out of there, mm-hmm. Jelly Roll Morton and people like that that are legends, you know, and but that's where they got their start. Yeah. And if it had not been for Storyville. Who knows? We might not have their music, right? You know, and, so and we'll work. So we're gonna, yeah, yeah, we're gonna go through. I know jazz I'm getting ahead of myself. It's here. fine. I'm sorry. Uh, no, you're fine. And also, I've 
said this before, I don't know if on the podcast, but I'm all in favor of legalizing prostitution. The only thing that worries me well, is that it's, it. it's so dangerous because well, people are monsters. Well, that's, that's the problem. That's the problem. Yeah. Um, but we, that's a whole other thing, but we'll yeah. talk more about it. But okay, let's start with jazz music and, and Buddy Bolden. So you mentioned, also, can we say whorehouses? Is that cool? You can say whorehouses. I just, that's I, cool. I like to say things that people don't recognize, like sporting houses. Oh, I even wrote it down at Body houses or brothels and bordellos. Right. And I don't think I mentioned whorehouse in here once, but I thought you that's did. Maybe, but that's essentially, I mean, that is what they were. I know. I just didn't know if it was a cool name to say. I know, it's kind of tacky. Uh, you know, it's kind of tacky. Yeah. I don't know. I like the sporting house. Yes. I've had people ask me, the hell's a sporting house? I was well, going to until yeah. I got from context. But so, uh, Buddy Bolden, many of Buddy's contemporaries believe that he started jazz. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of people who've claimed that they did uh, black and white, but as far as we can tell, as far as, as, as I've been able to, and, and it's not my work, but reading through other people's research into jazz, because I, again, certainly no expert, um, I just enjoy it. Mm-hmm. And um, as far as everyone can tell, he was really the first yeah. who was turning old songs into something new mm-hmm. and became a big sensation. Although most people have never heard of him today. Right. Well, I have. Um, I mean, you can't, he has no recordings. Mm-hmm. There are no recordings. You can't, I mean, you can find Jelly Roll Morton and Louis Armstrong and all these guys all over the place, but you cannot find Buddy Bolden, but you can find the Buddy Bolden Legacy Band, and which I is I recommend to people to go. It gives you a taste of very, very, very early jazz. And yeah. then you get an idea of what it was like and how, you know, Amazing it must have been to people to hear finally they had something that they could really get behind. Mm-hmm. I mean, this was not this was music that was not a spiritual or something, you know, it was a right. bluesy, uh, an upbeat version of the blues, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. And uh, it must have been really cool to experience. Yeah. I know? listened to some of the, the Buddy Bolden Legacy Band and I, I, I love jazz, but all I could think of was Angela from The Office when she's like, just play the right notes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but so it was music created by untrained musicians who were doing whatever they wanted. Yeah. Um, which I'm sure pissed some people off, but well, they it, didn't burst you know, these were guys who weren't going, they weren't getting music lessons. They didn't go to conservatories. They just learned to play something. This guy had, you know, picked up the coronet because he had a next, and see, I, all this isn't in there. Mm-hmm. I couldn't put everything in the, in the, the piece, but um, he learned it from a guy who lived next door when he was a kid huh. who, you know, played cornet. So he taught him how, and that's how he learned to play. So he was completely unschooled, didn't know how to read music. He just knew how to play it. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, where some of the best stuff comes from. Yeah. You know, and you mentioned that the powers that be didn't like it because it promoted contact across the color line. So you're talking about white guys dating black women, right? That's what they didn't like. Well, they didn't like that. <laughs> they didn't like people mixing together. Yes. It was not. You know, because this was an era, now we're getting into the late 1890s, Reconstruction is over. And now, you know, once you get all these Yankees out of our business, Mm -hmm. now we're going to go back to the way things are supposed to be, which is, you know, we're on the verge of seeing a, you know, a a rebuilding of the Klan and all this stuff. And so this is Jim Crow South. This Mm -hmm. is the laws that kept everybody separated down South. And, you know, this kind of music, I mean, and, and this really... I write about this much more in depth in that music book I did last yeah. year. Um, Song and, and it's dance and about death. the, yeah, the, the devil's music. And it was, it's always been one thing after another. It's, it's, you know, first it was the blues then it was jazz then it was this, then it was rock and roll. And then, you know, and so this was something that they saw as, you know, uh, 
something horrible. Mm -hmm. I mean, this was music. This was the devil's music because you had blacks and whites mixing together. And that was, nobody wanted that. Mm -hmm. And this was getting, you know, this was getting black people way too excited about music and we couldn't have that either. Mm -hmm. And so they, you know, they started cracking down on, on jazz, you know, musicians would get together and start playing because that's the, that's the thing about jazz. You can have a song that you've made up in your head and you guys, and you, you and your, your friends can get together and play your version of this song. And it may not be the same version of the same song the next night. Right. Because it's, it doesn't, they weren't writing sheet music. These guys were just getting together and playing and it was a sound. It's very improv improvisational. Yeah. And so they were getting together and playing whatever they wanted to play. And that just that just didn't sit well mm -hmm. with the authorities at the time. And so you said jazz yeah. was in a very real sense, an expression of defiance, rebelling yes, against the increasing absolutely. efforts to marginalize and suppress the African-American race. Right. And that brings us to, to Basin street. Yeah. So you said prostitution, but it's a necessary, uh, sorry, it's, it's essentially a necessary evil that's essentially regulated, not suppressed almost at that time with the kick, kickbacks. Right, because of the kickbacks, thing. you know, the, the politicians couldn't afford to suppress it because New Orleans was a seaport and it was the last stop on the Mississippi River. Mm -hmm. So you had a lot of people coming through and, you know, and so they found that it was much easier to regulate and make money off prostitution than it was to ban it because there's no way to ban it. Right. You, you can't ban it. Um, you can say it's against the law, but that's not going to stop anybody. No. So, but in those days, in the early days, um, you know, most of the, you know, the, the brothels and things were pretty rough. Yeah. And I mentioned I that I mentioned about the, you know, that you could, you know, could find a, a $10, you know, expensive parlor house, and then you could find a 15 cent crib mm -hmm. and cribs are, are, were something that were, uh, I mean, it's just, I don't know if they're, I, I'm assuming there's not a lot of kids that listen to this podcast, but essentially you had a room uh, lined with curtains and bed, or cots. Yeah. And you walked in, you paid your 15, 25 cents or whatever. Uh, you fulfilled your urge and you left. Yeah. And this would, these women would be, and this was the lowest of the low. These were women who couldn't have gotten into an expensive parlor house because they had, you know, down to this is the East end of London type of stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is rough stuff. And, um, that's, that's the kind of thing that was still going on that when they moved to Storyville, they were trying to get rid of Yeah, because when they started regulating it in a better way, this was the kind of stuff they wanted to avoid. Mm -hmm. Uh, because those are the, those are the women who are like today, you know, when you see things about sex trafficking and stuff, yeah. that's, that's the same situation. Right. These women were in, you know, they were at the time, one of the, the big, um, social reformers, one of the big key phrases was white slavery mm. back then. And these were women who were kidnapped, brought into cribs and, and really run down body houses and were broken in. And then, you know, usually hooked on some kind of drug, opium or, you know, something at that time. Yeah. And it's the same kind of thing that goes on today. And that's, that's where you run into that's not, you don't want something like that regulated. You want something like that stopped. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what they were trying to do with Storyville. Right. So, it's, and I'm not going to say it didn't still happen sometimes because mm -hmm. it was certainly happening in Chicago, even though it was regulated, but I'm still sure it was happening, but they were trying to get away from that. Mm -hmm. And so um, they ended up having, um, when they tried to bring it up a little bit, mansions, like appointment only, uh, yeah. uh, entertainers, well, things right, like that. Because Basin Street had been the American district um, when Americans first came down to New Orleans after you know, the United States had taken over Louisiana territory 
And, you know, we talked about that in past episodes where you had the French Quarter was divided from, you know, by canal from the American district. And most of these houses at that time were on Basin Street on the American side. And they were large homes that, unfortunately, the neighborhood changed. Mm -hmm. So you had these nice houses that people were living in and then they found that it was like a direct route to, to, you know, and so they moved to the garden district to get away from it. So you had all these big houses left behind. So a lot of financial backers who turned out to be politicians Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, and police officers and things were backing these madams who would come in, they'd fix up these houses and turn them into larger sporting houses. But Basin Street still had the rough areas too. It wasn't until Storyville that they tried to get rid of the really cheap Mm -hmm. stuff. And some of these places included breakfast in the morning and if needed, cab fare home. That's responsible and that's very nice. It sounds like a great time. Um, You mentioned uh, Basin Street's evolution began in the 1830s um, when New Orleans was experiencing growth in population. Uh, The first of these large bordellos was established by Kate Townsend in 1866. Any relation to Pete Townsend do we know? As far as I know, I don't think so. Oh, man. All right. Um, Her girls were given (laughs) one day off a week and they were all schooled on how to be a lady. Right. Well, you know, they were trying to... Trying to it up. court a, you know, a, a better class of guy to come in because the better the audience, the more you can charge. Right. Well, it's safer. Know, so and safer. Yes. Yes. And for so sure. You said, uh, I just have to say this. Kate Townsend herself was occasionally available for the entertainment <laughs> of a particular distinguished client at the going rate of $50 an hour. Uh, he had to be a man of particular taste because Kate tipped the scales at over 300 pounds. You could find about anything right, you wanted right. to, I guess is my point. And, you know. Good for her. This is almost a thousand dollars an hour. Yeah. Oh, it's a big money. So I mean, awesome. you know, when we're talking about the 1860s here, I mean, she's got a house worth over 200 grand. Yeah. Now, it wasn't all her money, obviously, yeah. but still, that was a lot of money in 1866. Right. No, it's, it's you a, know, so it's amazing. And then things declined as they do, and Kate is murdered in 1883. Yeah. So she let's, was. let's talk about the murder a little bit. So she formed a relationship early in her career with Treville. Egbert Sykes, Bill? How do you yeah, get Bill? Uh, I think it came from Treville, maybe is Bill. All right. French, something I, French there, I I'm guess. guess. But he lives in the mansion, does the books, the ETC, things like that. He claims it was terrible. Yeah. Uh, then they hit a low point when she brings in a new guy, McLearn, and then I, she essentially gets drunk and wants to kill somebody, stab well, somebody? She, well, I think that by this time, as I mentioned, that things had gone downhill a bit for her because Basin Street by this time had gotten... A worse, little right. worse reputation. Right. And we're getting closer and closer to the beginning of Storyville. And um, I think things were rough and she had developed kind of a temper over mm-hmm. things. So she'd had to lower her prices and she'd had right. to get rid of, you know, certain an, an, amenities that she'd had before mm-hmm. because she couldn't afford them anymore. And he was and stealing from her plus, too. Plus, yeah, I think they had a, a very violent, I mean, a love-hate relationship mm-hmm. anyway. Um, and so, yeah, she just one night said she was got drunk and said she was wanted to wanted to stab her boyfriend, but instead she said, "I'm just going to go home and stab Bill." Uh, and yeah, so and, and yeah, but I mean, you know, it was, this is an abuse situation, probably from both directions. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, because I picture 
and this is what I picture. Oh, now, I can't tell though. you. I can't tell you this for a fact, but we know Kate was a very large woman, and I picture Bill to be like this, like five five, skinny. Oh weighs, yeah. You know, weighs like one hundred and thirty pounds, soaking wet, kind yep. of thing. That's that's what I picture. Now mm-hmm. I cannot tell you if that is the case. It's but gotta that's be. what I picture. Uh, the newspapers don't give much of a description of him, so I couldn't tell you for a fact. But that's what I picture. And then you know. She could have easily have manhandled him. Right. And, and so and really killed him if she wanted to. But then the next morning he or well, a couple of days later, he ends up in her going into her room and then claiming that she tried to kill him, which we do know that she did keep a knife under her pillow. That is true. And that's a regular thing she did. But if she thought he was in there to kill her, she might have pulled that knife. What well, didn't matter. What ends up happening is that she gets stabbed 11 times and dies. Was it her knife so that she was It was killed her with? knife, yes. Gotcha. And so yes. Bill claims self-defense, which whatever, but he's tried and acquitted. And then he sues the estate. <laughs> By the time yeah. he gets his money from her, uh, he gets $34, but $667-ish now, which, yeah, which is nothing still, compared to, yeah, yeah. to what it was. Yeah, uh, I like this. Her body was followed to the cemetery by a procession of 20 carriages. There was not a man in any of them. Nope. Nope. It was all women. That's great. And yeah. after that, uh, January 26th, 1897, Storyville is created. 38 uh, blocks of legal prostitution. So let's talk about Storyville. Thomas C. Anderson is the unofficial mayor of yes. Storyville, yes. Uh, not to be confused with Thomas A. Anderson, who's Neo in The Matrix. Um, <laughs> he owned a building called Annex, which is the unofficial town hall. Uh, it was kind of the gateway to Storyville, the Annex. Okay. okay. And it was a big place, big, big place. And it was um, kind of one of those one shop stop kind of places where you could get girls, music, liquor, everything. Yeah. Um, sounds and great. so it was a big place. And it was kind of the first place that you hit as you're heading mm-hmm. down Basin Street. Smart. Uh, and, and to give you an idea, and I do talk about that later, but um, to give you an idea, this was kind of between where St. Louis Cemetery Number 1 is yep. and Canal Street. So mm-hmm. it was 38 blocks total, but not 38 blocks long. It just right. went over several blocks. So it was a large, and I didn't get into that. I don't want to list street names yeah, in the middle yeah, yeah. of the podcast, but it was a good sized area and it was several blocks, you know, several streets wide and long. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was, a, it was a decent sized place, but that was where they found it was the best place to kind of corral this right. situation that they had going on. Right. So. And rudeness and drunkenness were not tolerated. And I'm glad New Orleans has kept with that. And everybody's <laughs> right. on their best behavior. Uh, no, this is actually, this is the only redeemable thing about like nice strip clubs is that they'll have like <laughs> bouncers and stuff. And if you're drunk, well, or it was the same people, way back then. Not yeah. only they kick you out, they beat the shit out of you. Yeah. It was the same way out. back then, except back then you could throw somebody out and probably shoot them and no one would care. Damn. Um, so yeah, you did not want to cause a problem. Mm-hmm. Any of these places um, because they were the the nicer places were really strict about what you could or could not do. That's good. Yeah, that's a good. So, you're running a business too. Yeah. Um, and soon jazz bands were brought in for entertainment, but they were kind of hesitant because they were worried it would. Well, yeah, eat into and the I get it. I get bit. it. Yeah. You know, because you know who wants to if you got people down listening to music and dancing, then you're not spending enough. Well, you could still spend money on liquor, but you're not. You got a really good band playing. If you want to stay and listen to the band, you're not taking a girl upstairs. Right, and right. that was 
the problem. But once it started becoming so popular, they felt they had no choice. They mm-hmm. had to, if they were going to keep people coming in, they needed to hire these musicians. So you've got all these jazz guys all over town that are just starting to get a break. And yes, New Orleans has a lot of bars, but you got more guys wanting to play music than there are places for them to play. Mm-hmm. And so you get Storyville. Then you got 200 whorehouses around town that is are needing someone to play the piano or an entire band to play. And so you've got all these guys are working and then reporters come because this is an international tourist spot for people to come to because it was, you know, outside of Chicago, there weren't many places like this, you know? And so people would come and they reporters would come and when they get there, they'd hear this music and they, that would always end up in the stories and it attracted a lot of people. And I didn't, talk about him much in this, or I didn't talk about him at all in the monologue, but there was a photographer, a French photographer named Bellic, who came to New Orleans and came to Storyville and documented, this is where all of our photographs about Storyville, except for the ones that appeared in the Blue Book, as it was called, which mm-hmm. was a guide to all of the whorehouses. They actually published this book that was a guide to all the whorehouses in Storyville. But, Blue Book? <laughs> yeah, but what we know about or what we, all the photographs we have are his. And he photographed not only the um, the brothels and things, but actually photographed the prostitutes who posed for him. He was this weird little dude. He was like yep. five feet two and walked like a duck. That was what everybody like says. A Reverend he was just Kelly a, type? Yeah, yeah, except not a creep. He oh, was okay. actually there because he knew he was witnessing something that would be that needed to be preserved mm-hmm. because he knew it wouldn't last. Everybody knew it wouldn't last, but they were going to take advantage of it as long as they could. So he came in and documented everything. And the book he did is still in print. I've got a copy of it. It's just called Storyville. And it's filled with all of his photographs of all of these women who work there and all of the places that they, and it's, it's, it's fascinating. It yeah. really is. It's an interest. It's a great read just because um, it's a slice. It's like I talked about. It's a slice of history, something we'll never see again. I right. don't think. And uh, but it was uh, an interesting part of New Orleans history for the time that it lasted. And um, yeah, he did a great job documenting it. And it's I recommend that to anybody who wants to see it. Whenever I write about Storyville, I'll usually include one of his photographs. So awesome. Yeah. Um, so you talked about, you know, while it lasted on August, uh, 1917, an order was issued to ban prostitution within five miles of military bases. And the deadline for that was, well, that was because so many, they were having, and it wasn't necessarily in new Orleans. It was everywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, they were, you know, soldiers were on these military bases and they'd get a leave and then they'd come back with syphilis or gonorrhea or something. And so, you know, it just became an issue they had to to deal with. So the military decided that they would not allow this. And because it was more regulated and allowed back then, and mm-hmm. there were legal places to have it, but they just decided, well, they're going to stop it. And Storyville was big yeah, and it was, you know, close to the Naval base. And so they just decided no more. We're done. And if you don't close it, we'll close it. Yeah, so the military, I mean, the, the city did not want to close Storyville because not only did it make them a lot of money, but it, it was a tourist attraction. Yeah. It brought a lot of people to town, but the military gave them no choice. And so they had to shut it down. And they ended up facing uh, not 
as much resistance as they anticipated, aside from like a restraining order. Well, I think I think everybody there who was making money knew that its days were going to be numbered from the very beginning. I mean, it started in 1917. They're or in 1897. They're lucky they made it 20 years. Let's be honest. Yeah. So I think they all kind of knew that Mm -hmm. it was going to happen. There was only one madam who filed an injunction, and then they just kicked it out. So it didn't really matter. And a group tries to get together to help uh, the prostitutes, (laughs) but they all just kind of moved on. Yeah, they weren't interested. They just went and opened up somewhere else and started operating illegally again. So and then most of Storyville's leveled in 1940. Uh, There's there were three buildings left, but one ghost story. Yes. So let's talk about Josie Arlington, aka Mary Dubler. Is that correct? Yes. She's born in New Orleans around 1864. uh, Mistress to gambler pimp Phil Lebrano. They they all live together. Times are hectic. Eventually, Lebrano shoots Josie's brother. (laughs) Tried twice, but he's acquitted. Fine class of people. Yeah. Tried twice, but acquitted. So they're done. Uh, She reopens her bordello eventually. Well, she had been working as a prostitute on her own for years and then decided to go into her own business and start her own. But this was not like a high class place, Mm -hmm. obviously, until she got rid of Lebrano and got, you know, kicked him to the curb. And then she decided, I'm going to fix this place up. And right. she, so she was kind of ahead of the curve. She was pre, you know, pre fancy places on Basin and definitely ahead of the line on Storyville. But anyway. Yeah, so she's an entrepreneur, uh, which is, this place she opens is called Arlington. You said, this is a, a big thing, the, as seen as the grandest and gaudiest in the district. Yeah. That's got to be a high bar. To, well, they, <laughs> yeah, because, I mean, these places were everything you could possibly imagine from, you know, velvet everything to, you know, I mean, they had everything but velvet paintings on the wall because nobody had invented that yet. Yeah. But <laughs> they were, you know, pretty pretty gaudy play. I mean, entire rooms of mirrors. And I mean, yeah. it's everything you can possibly imagine when it comes to an 1890s whorehouse. This mm-hmm. was it. And so she had a very fancy place and she did business. And I, you know, a lot of the detail, like, I mean, I could, we could talk about Josie Arlington for like another hour mm-hmm. and there's so much detail, but, um, you know, a lot of the people that were her customers were, they were the, the top, society people in the city. Yeah. They were politicians, the mayor, the everybody. And yet they would have nothing to do with her outside. I mean, they were right. her best friend when they were at her place. But once they, if they saw her on the street, they were going to cross over to the other side and not talk to her because mm-hmm. nobody wants to be seen talking to, you know, a, a madam, you know? Right. And so uh, she just wanted to be accepted. She tried everything to get into all of the society clubs and they, and they would not have her as a member. And I think it made her bitter. Well, you you said, but Josie Arlington would have her revenge. What she couldn't have in life, she would have in death. I love that. It's super metal. That's great. Uh, (laughs) So she buys a really expensive burial plot in Mediterranean Yeah, she spent a fortune building this tomb. And it causes some drama because of who she is and where it is. But good for her. And then she dies in 1914. And eventually there's a traffic light that hits her tomb and glows red. So it's dubbed Josie Arlington's Flaming Tomb, which which sounds like the name of a burlesque or drag show. Doesn't it? Well, and the thing about it is, is that, you know, I, I'm not sure of all of the truth to that story. I mean, it's, it's one of those great legends in New Orleans that, you know, the, the, this woman who ran the, the most expensive 
brothel in Storyville, mm-hmm. suddenly she's got a tomb that looks like it's got a red light in the window. Yeah. I mean, to me, that's that smells Too like perfect. Yeah. Smells like a great urban legend. But the, the it does. The lights did make it look like it mm-hmm. was on fire and yeah. it was red inside. And the, so that got the story started. And then the story then, of course, takes off from there. Yeah. And there's even more to the story, which becomes even weirder. They say the statue in front of her tomb moves and even walks around. Yeah. The records say that on two occasions the statue was found in other parts of the cemetery. Most blame vandals, but the legends say otherwise. This is a new a new one for me. This is creepy. A statue moving around? <laughs> right, right. God, that would be terrible. <laughs> so the, the maiden on the steps gets angry and pounds on the door of the crypt, which could be for a few reasons, if, right. you, if you believe it. Right, right. Uh, one, she didn't allow virgins into the, yeah, into the portello. I'm thinking that's not true. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. So the statues to symbolize her life that, that's one of honor. those. That's one of those things that, that you, you paint people with Mm-hmm. You know, after they're gone and years right. have passed, you suddenly make them into better people yes. than they were at the time. This was a woman who was selling women mm-hmm. out of her brothel. But let's give her some this the the whore with the heart of gold. Yes. Let's see, oh, she didn't allow virgins inside. The women who worked there couldn't be virgins, and the young men who came in couldn't be. Oh, come on, now. yeah, whatever. They're paying. No yeah. one cares. Yeah, you take yeah, the money. No one cares. Others say the statue is Josie herself, and it's her father not letting her into the house when she was younger. No matter how much she pounds on the door. Yeah. Okay. So others say it's a symbol of society not accepting her, which kind of harkens back to the pirates thing with Lafitte. Yeah, it does make a little bit more sense. Yeah, and just you yeah. know, let let people in. Yeah. Um, especially yeah. you know, if you're working with them, then you you can't cross the street when you're not working with yeah, them. Yeah, right. And, and try exactly. to act like you're too good exactly. for them. Uh, and that is just going to cause trouble down the road. It is, whether in this life <laughs> As we've already or the seen. next. Yeah. <laughs> so it's now time for our Ghost Riders segment. If you have a question or comment about the world of the macabre, email us at American Hauntings Podcast at gmail.com. This first letter is from Nancy. It says, I actually have a question that's been bugging me. It's part unknown science, part speculation. The ghost hunter shows on TV always incorporate infrared or thermal sensors in their hunts. They often show footage of human forms in places where the naked eye doesn't see anything. They, of course, claim this is a spirit or some unearthly being. What puzzles me is how can a ghost or spirit have a heat signature? They're not living. There's no blood pumping, no warm flesh. They aren't known to throw off heat. In fact, people usually associate cold with the presence of spirits, but the device never shows uh, the shapes of cold only as heat if if the use of the device is just bunk like a lot of what i suspect reality tv ghost shows are or is it a reliable device for ghosts no hunting? i don't think it's i don't think that the devices are bunk i think the tv shows the are the tv shows because okay. theoretically uh, i mean the idea is if you're using some kind of infrared equipment you should be picking up a cold spot mm. because a ghost would not have a heat signature so if it's got a heat signature it's obviously you know the idiot that you've got working with you on your television show mm-hmm. who's standing in the frame. Ah. Uh, so if you're seeing heat, it's not a ghost. Um, if you're seeing cold, that would be a ghost. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I think that's, I think that stuff is mostly used for dramatic effect mm-hmm. in TV shows, but it is used in real life and um, it can be pretty reliable. Yeah. I mean, you can see things that you couldn't normally see, but um, I don't know. The use of equipment is tough because there are so many alternate, you know, 
explanations for what stuff could be because none of this stuff and I mean none of it was designed to be used for ghost hunting yeah was all designed to be used for something else something uh, scientific use and so it's being adapted to use whether it's an infrared meter or something that picks up temperature changes Xbox connect yeah all you can yeah that's don't even get me started on dotted you know stick men don't even get me started <laughs> on that so you know this stuff is is you can't use it and say absolutely for sure this is what this is i mean what's the new popular thing have you seen the new thing the rock that is essentially just like a mood ring that you hang around your neck it's supposedly a rock that changes color you can buy it on amazon it's like a couple hundred dollars or something it's supposed to be a rock that changes color when a ghost is near now this is what's different about this than dowsing rods or anything else nothing um, so I'm super skeptical about the mood ring rocks. Right. Um, so you just have to, my thing has always been, if you're going to use equipment, you need to have what I, what I like to call corresponding evidence. Mm. So one piece of equipment is not going to be your answer. You need to have like two or three things that are picking up the same thing. Let's say if you took a photograph and it shows what may be something paranormal in it, then you should have gotten some kind of temperature drop and maybe some kind of motion on a motion sensor at the same time. Yeah. Corresponding evidence is, is worthwhile information. Um, one piece of equipment, even if it's a, you know, $1,500 thermal imaging camera, that's not, that's not proof of anything. Mm-hmm. Not in my opinion, that's, that's, my opinion, we'll leave it at that. Right. But that's how I feel about I it. I would think, you know, now, now that I'm really thinking about it, if ghosts are any kind of energy, I mean, I would think there'd be a heat signature off of that and not a cold signature. I don't know. I could, well, I could die. I don't know. With ghosts, so, I mean, people talk about cold spots, and it's, it's always been, you know, one of the theories is that they're using energy around them to manifest in some way. That's what mm. creates this cold spot, is that they're sucking the energy out of the air, and that's what makes it cold. But yeah. again, that's just a theory. Right. No one knows. Right. Uh, she's followed up with, thanks for being a great distraction from monotonous tasks. You are welcome. And everything else going on in the world. Yes. So. Yes, we try. Uh, this next one's from Belinda. Says, I've just binged this over the holidays starting in November. I'm now caught up and want to say that you are both amazing. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I, I wish there was a 10 star rating because it deserves it. Troy, uh, thanks for your detailed research on these topics. Cody, thanks for all the banter. I love it. And I do listen to the end. I've gotten some other people <laughs> starting to listen. Also, the research cool. on the Limp family family episodes were detailed um, and had more information that I had no idea about. I live in Arkansas and we have some awesome hauntings here. You both are great. And I know Troy's known for dominating the podcast, but I think the chemistry <laughs> with you both is great. Cody, you do reel them in when needed. We did face. talk about that. We did. I don't do it on purpose. No, I know. Thanks for an amazing podcast. Thank you, Belinda. And this last one's from Ashley. Uh, she sent me um, a picture that her sister took in Gettysburg. Um, I'll attach it to the show notes if she's cool with that. And it's a uh, it's just taking a picture out, but what you're really looking at is the um, side mirror. There's kind of something in in there. Oh, I'll have okay. to show you the picture. Okay. Um, she also said she forgot to mention that the exorcism season was uh, her favorite and probably shouldn't have laughed, but the part when Robbie took the prayer book and the priest was chasing it throughout the house made me laugh out loud. <laughs> well, we laughed a lot. Yeah. So <laughs> can't wait for the New Orleans season. That's it. So thank you very cool. much, Ashley. Um, I just have two quick Patreon shout outs. So thank you to Shannon and Valerie for donating to our Patreon. Cool. Uh, really appreciate it helps us get new equipment yeah, and things absolutely. and get a uh, keep keep shows going for you all right well let's wrap it up then so we uh thank everybody for listening and uh we will hopefully see you at dead of winter coming up in a, in a week or so and uh, hopefully at the conference too
coming up in June, but uh, we'll be back uh, with our live episode from Dead of Winter uh, as our next episode, and then we'll be back in New Orleans for a couple more, and I'm not telling you what they are, but we have more shows coming up, so. Uh, well, I think since we have, we I don't know if anybody can hear, but we have some stuff going on where we are, um, and so it's kind of noisy, so I'm just going to call it at yeah. that. There are no ghostly children in the background, there are no so, Nancy. So, so we're done, yeah, we'll, we'll talk to you later, and this episode of the American Hauntings Podcast was written I by Troy Taylor, produced and edited by me. Cody were serious this In each bi-weekly episode, we try to combine history, folklore, legend, imagination, and the truth to reveal more about America's most haunted places, strange tales, and unexplained events. You can find the show on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows and at AmericanHauntingsPodcast.com where we also have show notes, more info about the episodes, and links to more from have American you been keeping Hauntings. Up with, that? with what? With keeping up with the separate episodes the way we were doing it? Uh, yeah. We started it sh- doing it? It cool. should be. Yeah. Cool. It's pain yeah, that ass, was a great, yeah, but it was a great idea. Yeah, so, so you Oh, uh, anyway, sorry. No, Go you, ahead. Yeah, I, I was a legit, Let me interrupt you. Legit one. Yeah, uh, because American Hauntings isn't just a podcast, it's books and tours, events, and more, all of which you can find on our main website at AmericanHauntings.net. Haunted America Conference. And if you want even more from us, you can become a supporter of the podcast on Patreon. You can get bonus episodes of the show, t-shirts, discounts, great stuff in the mail, and more. Thanks to our supporters, we have upgraded our equipment for the show, and with continued help from you, we can dedicate more time and resources to creating even more shows in the future. <laughs> I can't guarantee that. Take a minute and check it out. We think you'll like what you find at patreon.com slash American Hauntings. Be sure to get in touch if you have any comments about the show, suggestions, reviews, jokes, or just want to tell us what you really think of us. We're reachable <laughs> via email, on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Carrier Pigeon, Telegram, and we'll come up with a new one Yeah, we gotta find later. something else. Sky writing. Yeah. I, hey, that's a good one. Yeah, you know? <laughs> I don't know. So, until next time, goodbye, so long. See you later. See ya. Look, I just looked at the top.